Good morning. It's such a privilege to be able to come here and open up the Word of God with you. And uh, we are looking at, or continuing, albeit slowly, through the book of Revelation. And we're up to chapter 2. So you might like to turn there with me. Today we're looking at the church at Pergamum, a church in danger of being a sinkhole. So please turn there with me. The outline of all the churches, the seven of them, we've done two, we've done Ephesus and Smyrna. The outline is that we have uh, someone who is evaluating the church, then we have the church that is being evaluated, then we have a, a commendation and a condemnation. Now there are two churches that don't have that condemnation, this is not one of them. And then we have uh, something that the Lord wants, us, wants the church to do. And then we go into overcomers. All the church talks about rewards for overcomers. And this uh, church is no different. It has those outlines. And so turn with me to Revelation chapter 2 and we'll start at verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamon write, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this. Now if you've been here for the previous two churches, you would understand that we know who that, the one who is saying, the evaluator is, it's the risen Lord. And the reason we know that is because you can look back at Revelation, in this case chapter 1 verse 16, where John in his vision saw the Lord. And each of the seven churches starts with a piece of that vision. And the vision we have today, uh, the piece of the vision is Revelation 1.16. In his right hand he held seven stars and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. So we know that this person speaking, the evaluator, is the head of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, it's the risen Lord Jesus Christ. What is a sharp two-edged sword? Why would that be proceeding from his mouth? We can look back at Hebrews chapter 4. Most of you would know this as a memory verse. Hebrews 4.12 For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as for as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intents of the heart. There we're told the word of God is a two-edged sword. It's able to judge. I think we understand from, the, from Revelation and from Hebrews, and if we had time we could go into other passages, that in this particular picture that is being painted for us, Jesus is seen as the one who has authority. He is the one who has judgment. And this authority and this judgment is his word. He's able to judge with that word. In fact, Jesus says in Matthew 28, 18, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. He has all authority. None less than in his church. And so he has this authority and now he exercises that authority in this church at Pergamum. And I want you to know that he exercises that authority in our church here today. He is the head of the church. 
He is evaluating our church. Remember, the church is not this building, it's us. He's evaluating you all the time as he does this church in Pergamum. So let's read. Let's read uh, what the, the, uh, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says to the church at Pergamum. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast by name and did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who keep who kept teaching, teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in, who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent, or else I am coming to you quickly and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. In our passage this morning, we're going to see a church that has been commended, and we're going to see a church who has condemnation placed against it. We're going to see a compromise within the church of Pergamon. We're going to see this compromise through the teaching of Balaam and the Nicolaitans. Webster's Dictionary says, to compromise is to make a shameful or disreputable concession. To compromise is to make a shameful or disreputable concession. If you want to take it into theology, it can be called accommodating theology. Didn't know we had one of those, did you? Accommodating theology. I change what I believe about the scriptures so I can accommodate my circumstances. I change what I believe about the scriptures so I can accommodate my circumstances. And this church of Pergamon had begun to ignore the principles and the commands and the teachings of Scripture. They began to compromise. But it's not just the church at Pergamon back in the first century that struggles with shameful concessions of the Word of God. 21st century churches are still changing what they believe about the Scriptures so they can accommodate what they believe. Now I'm not going to go into and make a list of it, list of them because you know the things I'm talking about. You know that churches will change what the scripture says, they'll try and switch it around so they can accommodate the situation that they think is right. Let me give you some quick facts about Pergamum. Because I want to lay the foundation of this church. See, Pergamon itself was primarily known for one thing, and that is religion. You see, on every corner there, there wasn't a church. On every corner you'd find a temple. You'd find an altar to a pagan god. 
For instance, people came from all over the world to be healed by the god Asclepius. My family used to change that name to Asclepius and call me that because I was always going to sleep. But it's Asclepius. He was the god of healing. On a hillside overlooking the city, we have the giant altar to Zeus. People went up there to, to give sacrifices. Dionysus, Athena, all had notable temples in this city. But beyond that, even beyond what we've just, uh, just said, Pergamus was importantly known as the promoter of imperi- the imperial cult. This is where we have Caesar worship. And in this part of the world, they were the centre of Caesar worship. They took its devotion very seriously. But something with all that, something is even worse. Because with those religions is associated immorality. See, they had prostitution. They had sodomy. They had orgies. They had lewd entertainment. This was one wicked city based around the religions and the the pagan gods who were wicked. And the Lord says that in fact. Look at what he says in verse 13. What does the Lord say of the city of Pergamon? He says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. At the end of verse 13, the Lord says, Pergamon is where Satan dwells. This is the place that Satan called home. It was a horrible place. These two phrases, Satan's throne and where Satan dwells, can't help but stress the significance of the activity of the evil one in Pergamon. It was a place of iniquity and like King's Cross or Hindley Street here in Adelaide, I can't overstate the wickedness of this city. And so here we have this little church of Pergamum, surrounded by wickedness, surrounded by pagan gods, and they were worshipping in this place. You see, God had a light in the heart of Satan's throne. God had a light where Satan dwelled. The church of Pergamum. Jesus himself said, you are the light of the world. We as Christians are the light of the world. And as it turns out, the people of the church of Pergamon were light to the wickedness of the people around them. They were light. I'll just read Matthew 5, 14 to 16, just to remind us that Jesus said from verse 14, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And this church did that. The Lord says in verse 13, I know your works, I know where you dwell. The Lord was saying, I know the circumstances. I know the obstacles you have to come. I know the culture. I know the false religions. I know all the opposition you face. I know the lewdness of this city. But you are my light. 
And under all this pressure, verse 13 says that this church, you hold fast my name. You did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you. In their personal lives, in their public ministry, the name of Jesus was lifted high. Lift high the name of Jesus, we sang. In amongst where Satan dwelt, everything they did identified with Christ. They held fast to his name. They never denied their faith. Even in the days of Antipas, who was killed. Now, we have no idea who Antipas was, but what I do know is the Lord used him as an example. He said, here's my witness, here's my faithful one. I wonder if the Lord wrote a letter to the church at Bonbury North. I wonder if he wrote a letter today. He could use your name as an example of being his witness. I wonder if he wrote a letter to us that he, the Lord would be able to call you his faithful one. In amongst Satan's throne room, Antipas and the whole congregation says, no, we will not deny the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to hold fast to his name and we will den never deny our faith even though everyone around us wants, to, wants us to. We will never do it. We will let our light shine before men in such a way that they will see our good works and it will glorify our Father who is in heaven and the Lord commanded them for it commended them for it. This was a brave church. In amongst the, the wickedness and the lewdness, they didn't deny the Lord. They held up the name of Jesus. This church, this church light was shining brightly. And Jesus said, I commend you because you're not denying the faith and you're not denying my name. You know, as we sit here this morning, we need to thank God every day for the freedom we have in this country to worship the Lord. But that freedom w brings compromise. I'd like to put a challenge to you that only you can answer. And your answer will let you know if you are the light of the world. And the question I have between you and the Lord is, would you be willing to die instead of saying Caesar is Lord? which Antipas apparently did. Would you be willing to die? And if the answer is yes, I will die any time for my Lord, then why is it so hard to live for the Lord on Monday through to Saturday and lift up his name to everyone? Why is it so hard if you answered, I will die for him, why is it so hard to live for him? We see in Pergamon a church that was unashamed of their Christianity, unwavering in their love of the Lord Jesus Christ, even in the city where Satan had his throne. And people looking from the outside of this church would see a strong church with their, their feet on solid ground. But even though they were given this wonderful commendation from the Lord, they received a condemnation from the Lord as well. Because even though looking from the outside people would see them, 
the Lord being who he is, just doesn't look at the outside of of a church. He looks at your heart. He looks on the inside. He sees the heart. The evaluator of the church of Pergamum, the evaluator of the church NCC, sees the heart, not just the outside. And this is what he said in verse 14. But I have a few things against you. Because you have some there, you have there some, sorry, who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. The condemnation is that a group of compromising people had infiltrated the church fellowship and Jesus Christ hated their doctrines and their practices. You might remember from the last time I spoke that Satan was trying to crush the, the, the church at Smyrna by persecuting it from the outside of the church. Just look back at chapter 2 verse 10. They were, they were being crushed from the outside. The devil is, it says, The devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation ten days. So they were being tested from the outside. But here in the church of Pergamon, Satan was getting to the congregation through corruption within. Like a Trojan horse being wheeled in with this teaching. But that's the way our enemy operates. He either tries to crush you from the outside and if that doesn't work, he'll corrupt you with compromise from the inside. What was the compromise here at Pergamum? False teaching. False teaching of Balaam and the Nicolaitans. Now I think understanding the story of Balaam will help us interpret this insidious group more accurately. So I'm just going to quickly talk to you about Balaam. This can be found in Numbers chapter 22 uh, through to chapter 25 if you want to go home and read about this in more detail. Numbers 22 tells us that Balaam was a true prophet of God but he prostituted his gifts in order to earn money from Balak, the king of Moab. You see, Balak had hired Balaam to curse the people of Israel. But God turned the curses of Balaam into blessings. And Balak didn't like that. He was quite upset. It meant Balaam was probably not going to get his money. But in the end, Balak did get his money's worth because Balaam's advice came along and said, you need to make friends with Israel. You need to invite the Jews to, to marry your women. You need to invite the, the Jews to worship and feast at the altars of Moab. In other words, Balaam said, if you can't beat them, join them. And that's, what's, that's what happened. The Jewish men fell right into the trap. Many of them married Moab women. They ate meat from idolatrous altars. 
They committed fornication as part of the heathen religious rites. And if you read right through from chapter 22 to 25, you would understand and see that the disobedient act of compromise, because of it, 24,000 people died because of that compromise. So why does this bit of ancient history apply to the believers of Pergamos? Because a group had come into the church saying, there's nothing wrong with being friendly to Rome. What's the harm in in putting a pinch of incense on the altar? What's the harm of affirming your loyalty to Caesar? There's no harm in it. The teaching of Balaam is the teaching that, he, that attacked the separation and the sanctification that God expects his people to maintain. We're to be of the world, or in the world, but not of the world. The people in Pergamum, the church, was to be in the world, Satan's throne, but not of them. Balaam's teaching says it's okay. You can merge with the world. You can maintain your Christian distinctiveness on Sunday, but merge with the world. It's a doctrine that says it's okay to live like the world during the week and then come to church and hold fast the name of the Lord. Sing those songs. The teaching of Balaam is teaching error by placing a stumbling block in front of someone who's trying to walk and live for the Lord. It's widespread, then and now. In fact, it's been around since the early church. If you'd like to turn to 2 Peter 2.15, just quickly, just a few books back, this teaching has been there for a long time. 2 Peter 2.15, they have forsaken the right way and gone astray following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. The doctrine of Balaam that this church in Pergamon was, uh, was being taught was trying to live or live any way you want on Monday to Saturday, but still say, God, I love you on Sundays. But we cannot come to church on Sunday and sing hymns to God after doing whatever we want to do on Monday to to Saturday. You can't do that. We can't sing beneath the cross of Jesus, I fain would take my stand, unless we can sing sing that we're content to let the world go by to know no gain or loss. We can't sing we want to survey the wondrous cross and not be willing to sacrifice the vain things that charm me most. We can't sing my Jesus, I love thee, And really mean it until we say with all our heart, for him all the follies of sin I resign. And some of the people in the church of Pergamos were practicing the teaching of Balaam. Live any way you want, but show up on Sunday and everything will be okay. We can't do that. God says, be holy even as I am holy on Sunday. No, he doesn't, does he? Be holy as I am holy, Sunday through to Saturday. So Balaam was the first problem. The second problem were the Nicolaitans, whom we already met in Ephesians in the Ephesus church. 
The name simply means to rule the people. Now, neither the identity, identity nor the teaching of the Nicolaitans has been preserved for us today. We don't know who or what they taught. But what we do know from chapter 2, verse 6, is that Jesus hated them. Look at 2.6. Yet this you have done. This is a church in Ephesus that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. I think at the time I said, whatever Jesus hates, it's good for us to hate it as well. And so the church of Ephesus were commended for their hatred of this teaching. But here in Pergamum, this teaching was now tolerated. So what we have here in Pergamum is a faithful church with people living for the Lord. Uh, from the outside, people were looking in. They were holding the name of Jesus fast. They did not deny their faith. And yet within the church, you have a group of people who are starting to put stumbling blocks into people's lives, causing them to trip up, and it was being tolerated by the, by the church. Dr. Swindoll says it this way, while Ephesus understood how to love the sinner and reject the sin, Pergamum chose to love the sinner and accept the sin. And as the one who sees the heart of his church, the risen Lord, he directs his rebuke to the faithful Christians who have attended this church in Pergamum. But they have now failed to take action against those who taught compromising doctrine the doctrines of Balaam and the Nicolaitans. And so because the situation has come to this point where they started to, to allow this to happen, the Lord gives his church an order. Starting in verse 16, it says, Therefore, repent. Simple command, repent. Repent against those false teachers. What does it mean to repent? It just simply means to turn around and go in the opposite direction. It's as simple as that. There's no, nothing fancy about the word. Repent means you're doing something, you repent of it, you go in the opposite direction. So the Lord's saying, get rid of those holding to the teaching of Balaam. Get rid of the Nicolaitans. Hate them as I do. Do not tolerate them. Stop causing people to trip up with their walk with me. Stop compromising my word. But what if they were too weak to do this? What if their leadership just couldn't bring themselves to do it because they were scared of the people or whatever reason? What if they decided not to repent? Well, the Lord says, if you do that, I am coming to you quickly and I'll make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Jesus Christ himself would come with the sword of his mouth and say, here it is, I'm going to lay bare your soul. I'm going to judge you with the word of God. You see, the power of the sword doesn't rest with the rulers of Rome or, or with Satan. It rests with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the sword of judgment. It's the sword that discerns the truth. It's the sword that punishes the evil. And our Lord will use it even against those in the church who will not repent. Did they repent? We don't know. 
except I'm able to say that there are churches still today in Bergama, which is the new name for Pergamum. Whereas in Ephesus and Smyrna, there are no churches. In fact, there's no cities. I don't know if they repented, but they were given a warning. Maybe they listened. Verse 17 says, If you have an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I love that saying, always have. He who has an ear, and you've got two of them, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Listen to it. Listen to what I've just instructed. Now this is for us. Listen to what I've just said about this church. Certainly you're saying, listen Pergamum, listen to what I've said. Remember James, we can go to James chapter 1. They didn't have that at that stage, but we can go to a, a verse that says, but prove yourselves to be doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. If we're just hearing the word and not doing it, we are deluding ourselves. And Jesus says, listen, have an ear to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Listen to me, repent, turn away from it. And then the Lord says, to him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone which no one knows but he who receives it. Now we have already discussed twice the fact that he who overcomes and it will be there for the next four churches is John's way of saying born again believers. I'll just take you back to 1 John 5, 4. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And so he calls born again believers overcomers. And so he says to, to born-again believers, I will give some of the hidden manna, I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone which no one knows but he who receives it. Three re rewards for us as born-again believers. Hidden manna, a white stone and a new name that's written on it. Now I'm sure you're all waiting in the pews here, waiting for me to explain this to you. I can't. I don't have a clue. I don't have the truth of those rewards. There is much speculation and I don't want to add to the speculation. I don't want to give you what I think. If I can't give you what the Bible clearly says and I'm not going to give you what I think. I've read commentaries. I've read, I even have a book on Bible backgrounds. And I've come, they came up with seven different explanations of what the hidden manna might be. The hidden manna can be explained as being an allusion to the manna that was in the Holy of Holies, to it simply being the overcomer will receive celestial food not available to the world. With this manna is linked a white stone inscribed with a new name. I found eight suggestions for the stone from where a member of a jury who was for acquittal handed in a white stone to the stone being used as a ticket for admission to public entertainment to, to where it's a reference to the stone and the breastplate of the high priest with the name of one of the tribes written on it. We just don't know. The people of the first century knew, but we've lost that information. 
And I'm not going to speculate. I'll leave verse 17 to a statement from Ray Stedman. This is what he said when he got to this part. He said, These are secret things that have special significance that talk about the intimacy of trusting in Christ. And for me to speculate on verse 17 is going to take me away from the message of the church. And I'd like to finish our time together, not in speculation, but in truth. And the truth is that Pergamon began to compromise. And we've learnt and understood that God hates compromise in the teaching of his church. And he says, therefore repent or else I am coming to you quickly and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. And I can tell you right now, the Lord's war against a church begins when we begin to compromise one truth about God's word. I'm going to share something that I hope will stick with you when you think of compromise. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Chuck Swindoll wrote, Compromise is like erosion. It is slow, it is silent, and it is subtle. So in finishing, I'll ask a question. Do you know what a sinkhole is? You might have seen them on the news. I think here in South Australia, I think we're the champion of sinkholes on our roads. You're driving along a road and bam, your car's at a 45 degree angle in this massive hole. Or you've seen pictures of a sinkhole that's swallowed up a whole house. I think it happens in New Zealand a lot, doesn't it? Unstable ground. But that's what compromise is like. Do you know how a sinkhole is formed? One grain of sand at a time. A little bit here, a little bit there. Just before the sinkhole happens, the crust of the earth looks fine. Nothing missing. You could say it's like our church at Pergamon. Looks good from the outside. But underneath, everything is empty and shallow and wasted away. And all of a sudden, just a little weight gets a little too much and whoosh, it's gone. Massive big hole from being looking perfect to this massive hole. Can I tell you right now, sinkholes in churches start when we begin to compromise one truth about God's word, another truth about God's word, something about Jesus Christ, something about the deity, something about the virgin birth, something about the purpose of the church. And before you know it, grain by sand, by grain of sand, we have this sinkhole where the church used to be. Let us never, ever, not even once, compromise the validity and the authority of God's word. Amen? You see, when we stand here on the truth of God's word, we're in no danger of a sinkhole, no matter what's going on around us. But when we begin to tolerate one grain of sand at a time, believe me, we'll have no idea what danger we're in. One grain of sand at a time, that's how it happens. Let us never compromise the word of God 
If we see compromise, deal with it completely. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for your word that is so challenging for us, certainly challenging to the church at Pergamum. But Lord, it's challenging for us. Lord, we desire wholly in our hearts never to compromise on your word, never to allow teaching that would go against your scriptures. But Father, we need your wisdom. We need your guidance. We need our leaders to be continuing to pray to you for that wisdom. And I pray, Father, that as a congregation we will always be on the lookout. I thank you, Lord, for the the lessons that we can receive. Father, we don't want to be a sinkhole. We don't want to have one little bit at a time eating away at the foundation that we stand on being the Word of God. Give us wisdom, I pray. And I ask it in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.